Hello, family, and welcome back to another episode of the Black and Empowered podcast. Of course, welcome to the new people who are joining this podcast and joining us as listeners. And for those who have been faithful, loyal listeners, welcome back. We are back with another episode. Um, So today's episode is an interview of Dr. Metzger by the founder, Dr. Ijoma Kola, the founder of a beautiful and amazing network that I'm a part of. This is Brianna, if you didn't know, that I'm a part of that basically provides a space and a community and an environment for Black women who are pursuing higher education and taking the steps to get their doctorate to be supported to be in a space for women that look like them. Um, And Dr. Joe McCullough is interviewing Dr. Metzger about her mentorship model, her mentorship model, what that looks like for her, the boundaries that she's created around her navigating academia, and then also genuinely what she does, what her passion work is and how she translates that passion into her research into her community engagement. And ultimately she leaves us with a beautiful nugget about pursuing doctoral education. So for all the black women who are thinking about pursuing higher education and pursuing a doctorate, this is for you. So stay tuned. I hope you all continue to listen. And I hope this is an amazing episode to you as it was to me. So welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, Dr. Aisha Metzger. We were just talking before we started recording how we're both in the middle of moves. So (laughs) serious struggle, very much of a struggle, but excited to learn more about your academic journey, your work. I was reading your CV and I say reading because it is 19 pages long, (laughs) a lot on the CV. So really excited to kind of get into your work, your trajectory, and just learn more about all the amazing things that you do. But before we kind of get into all of that, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what do you like to do, where you live, all those really awesome things. Okay, who am I? I am a first-generation American by way of Sierra Leone, West Africa. I am a Beyonce stan only because I'm looking at her right now. That's a great (laughs) and large part of my identity. I am a researcher, academic, clinician, consultant, advocate. I am a daughter, a sister, a best friend. You know, I'm a pretty good lover, depending on who you ask. (laughs) I am... A mediocre singer, very enthusiastic, however. I'm a lot of things. What am I doing currently? The professional part, I said, I'm currently faculty. I'm transitioning. So why I'm moving is that I'm transitioning from the University of Georgia to Georgia State University. So I'm moving from Athens, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia, so that I can continue my program of research and my community-based work. None of that is changing. All of the work that I've been doing has been with the Atlanta community. And that is towards making evidence-based treatments and community-based organizations more culturally appropriate, more welcoming, and more accessible for marginalized populations, specifically Black youth, emerging adults, and families. 
who are exposed to interpersonal trauma and racial trauma. So interpersonal trauma is stuff like child abuse, neglect, sexual assault, witnessing domestic violence. And racial trauma are things like experiencing discrimination in your community, watching police brutality, seeing kind of the disparaging messages on social media and across the news, all of the racial stressors that we're used to navigating. And really making those treatments and those services that we provide in the community around trauma, HIV, and substance misuse more appropriate and more useful for Black populations, I'll say. What else did you ask me? Who am I? What do I do? Though I think those are the main two. Yeah, no, you covered everything. You talked about your hobbies, talked about your background. You even started to get into your work, which I know is super multifaceted. So I know there'll be a lot of questions. I mean, I will ask you questions <laughs> about how you balance all of the different things that you do. But first, let's talk about your doctoral journey. So what is your doctorate in and from what school? My doctorate is in clinical community psychology from the University of South Carolina in Columbia. So clinical community is a joint program. Typically, there are clinical psychology programs or community psychology programs. This is one of few that allowed me to do both at the same time. And it was a great time many, many, many years ago. And I do think that I got excellent training from that program. So go Gamecocks. (laughs) Awesome. And then what did you do for your dissertation? What was your dissertation project about? Wow. And you know what? Some of my grad students recently combed off my data. So I'm going to tell you, it was the ABC study, the activities and behaviors in college study. Come on. Mm -hmm. And I looked at risk behavior engagement and I looked at college student experiences. So I was looking at environmental stress, academic stress, interpersonal stress. So again, those relationship stressors and individual stress and how that impacted risk behavior engagement. So I was a sex, drugs, and rock and roll researcher. I still kind of am. So engagement in risky sex and alcohol and substance misuse. So I was looking at how those stressors, right, contributed to engagement in these risk behaviors by way of coping by way of emotion regulation. And I was looking at racial socialization as a protective factor for that. So how does the way that our parents talk to us about race impact our ability to cope with those stressors? Oh, I said interpersonal stressors and also racial stressors. So of course, discrimination on college campus and other stressors that college students were looking at. So (laughs) very many years ago, I love that question. Wow. Yeah. I was interested in how stress led to risk behaviors and I still am so that's great I, love I was gonna ask yeah you keep referring to it as many many years ago I mean I don't feel like it was that long ago but maybe because you've done a lot of different things since then so how have your research interests evolved from when you were a doctoral student to now in your professional career well you know they say black don't crack but what I will say is that <laughs> I was, so you're looking at me now when I have long locks I was I had like a mini fro I remember Right before I got my master's, me and my boyfriend of the time broke up and I shaved my head. So I, it's been that long of time, right? So I went from this for very long natural fro and then I locked my hair two years ago. So what I'll say is that over time, right? I was just talking about my hair and how it's grown. Over time, my research questions have not really evolved. They have become more solidified. And they've become more impactful, I'll say. So the question that I was asking in graduate school was, like I just said, how do risk behaviors develop? 
right? And how does racial socialization, so the conversation that we have around racial stressors impact our ability to cope with the stressors that we face and our outcomes that are related to them. But when I first got to graduate school, I told my mentor, I'm going to establish a parenting program and it's going to be based in the community. And my thesis is going to be testing that program. And she said, (laughs) ma'am, tell me about one mechanism and what do you think you're going to be implementing in in this program? And I said, well, (laughs) they're going to be good parents. And (laughs) then I hug their kids and talk to them. And she said, what's that conversation called? And I said, oh, well, we just call it the talk, right? And then she said, well, it's called racial socialization. So I had to build that vocabulary and start doing questions within group differences and racial socialization and outcomes in that way. But now what I'll say is that I'm doing that research that integrates racial socialization into trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And I am able to see the benefits of those conversations in therapy. I'm also able to do these trainings and these consultations with therapists. And as you know, research does, we do evaluations at the beginning and at the end. We do a pretest, and then we're able to see how is your efficacy as a clinician improved because of these conversations that you're having now able to have, right? So I am, I would say that my interests have become more solidified, they've become more impactful, and I'm able to see what I always wanted to see. So I guess that is evolution, right? And that now they're being birthed. Yes. (laughs) It was just an idea. So hopefully what I'll say is that I'm also getting to the public health kind of benefit of my work to where we're able to disseminate the results of our studies and we're able to disseminate messaging around racial stress and racial trauma and around racial socialization. And that for me, all right, so let me say we are evolving. That's an evolution, right? Because mm-hmm. now we've gone from treatment outcomes and to treatment modification to public health dissemination and public health messaging to affect the larger community, so not just the clinical population. So there you go. There you go. I accept. So it has evolved in that way. We're getting there. We're getting there. Definitely, definitely. And you're right. I think when I was looking at your website, I saw in the public health campaign section that you have these, I'm assuming they're like cards or placards that you can, you know, put outside your home or like on your front lawn that have really cool messaging on them. That I have this laying around everywhere. They're yard signs. (laughs) Yes. And that's what they're called yard signs. I'm clearly like not someone who yes. has lived in a house before. I've, I've like an apartment dweller my whole life. <laughs> you just a house. We were just talking about moving. Give me yes. your address. I'll send you one. They're free. You put them in your yard and they have QR codes on them. And the QR codes lead back to our racial trauma guide and to our care package for racial healing. But the signs just talk about racism, racial trauma, how to be a good ally, how to cope. They're really quick messaging around those things. So there is an evolution, right? So we've gone from treatment to community to population or public health work. I'll take it and I like it. I love it. I definitely will send you my address because I love those signs. They're really well done. And if anyone else is interested, we'll definitely include the information on how to get one below in the show notes. So let's talk about your doctoral journey. How did you even end up in a doctoral program? How did you decide to pursue a PhD in clinical community psychology. How did that happen? Right. So I said I'm from Sierra Leone. So Ijoma, are you from Nigeria? I am. Yes. You're Nigerian, right? So here we go. You know, I was going (laughs) to be a doctor, a lawyer, or engineer. And that's just by birth. 
So even today, right, my dad still asks me, like, when are you going to become a real doctor? And I'm like, dad, I'm done. I'm done. So I don't know what to tell you. But certainly I, I knew that I was going to be, in that case, I was going to be in a helping profession. I went from saying I was going to do pediatrics, I was going to be a pediatrician, to once in high school, really, I found out what psychology was. And I said, you know, all right, dad, you're going to have to accept <laughs> This, this PhD that I'm going to end up getting or this ID or this therapist degree. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to be a therapist, right? And then in college, I became a McNair scholar with the Ronald E. McNair post-baccalaureate training program. And that really showed me that, oh, girl, you have to do research and you have to get some degree, right? Whether that be a PsyD or a PhD or a master's. And this is how you do it. So I started to do research in undergrad. I got a mentor who said you need more mentors and you need to reach out to people who are doing the work that you want to do, which ironically, right. So let me say this, come on, full circle moment. I was an undergrad at Georgia State University in a clinical community psychology program. My mentor there, Rihanna Williams at the time, now Mason, told me about the University of South Carolina, which is one of few that is another clinical community program. She went there. I applied there. I didn't work with her former mentor. She was in education, right? But she knew about the school. So out of all the programs I applied to, the mentor that I ended up matching with is one who was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And she's still my mentor till today. But in undergrad, right, as a part of the McNair program, they were teaching me how to write a personal statement. My first personal Mm -hmm. statement was, girl, it was about the Civil War back home it was about like being a kid, giving oh, teddy bears to my family and wanting to help, right? And she was like, ma'am, <laughs> personal statement, but research. Like, what are you doing here? Right? Yeah. <laughs> I had to learn how to write a personal statement, right? So going through that process and right, so McNair, they provided GRE waivers. I was broke. Mm-hmm. They provided application fee waivers. I was still broke, right? So they helped me kind of navigate the process to getting into graduate school. I did interview prep with them, right? So my first interview wasn't with a potential faculty member. It was with them. So I I was confident by the time I was really interviewing. And then I got to grad school and my mentor told me very quickly, right? Yes, you're going to get to those future goals, but first you need your degree. And the way we get degrees is by having a program of research. It's by publishing in these areas. It's by establishing your own, not mine, your own reputation, right? So having those conversations, I think, is is really what allowed me to start understanding academia and learning how to navigate the space, which ironically is why I'm in academia today, because if you ask me back then, it wasn't happening. I was going to be you know, just working in the community. I don't know what that degree would have been or how it would have, but it's because of those mentoring experiences and me now wanting to mentor future students and seeing, right, that I can do that community work, but I also want to see the benefit of it and I want to show the evidence of it. And that's research that allows me to do that. And certainly after I shaved my head, right, I went to my mentor and I was like, why am I here? What is life? What is practical? I can just go hug babies in the community. And she said, how do you know that it's effective? Mm-hmm. Right. So I had to, all right, well, I guess I will drop out. Right. You get those reminders along the way of why you're doing the work and why it's important. And I will say that, right, that's a continued part of my journey. She helped me practice my job talk for my first job. 
at UGA. She helped me practice my job talk for this current job. She helped me negotiate, right, a retention offer and switching universities. And she still helps me. And certainly I would say that that's been a large part of my journey has been getting mentors and getting colleagues. And now I have grad students, which is nuts. And they call me mom. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, what is happening <laughs> here? But, you know, continuing that legacy, I'll call it, continuing mm-hmm. that hierarchy, others might call it, right? Yeah. But making sure that I continue getting mentored and that now I'm a mentor. My grad students are mentoring undergrads, right? They're mm-hmm. showing them how to get into grad school and they're reviewing their applications and I have three McNair scholars. I have McNair students, right? That's and awesome. It's mind blowing, but it's really great to even talk to you and get this question asked and to be able to sit down and think about like, whoa, what was that trajectory <laughs> for me? So mentorship is always something that is, as you said, really critical to not only your development as a student, but really as a scholar. But I'm going to say some people, but myself included, not everyone is knows how to really develop and invest building a relationship with a mentor. So right. as someone who has done that really well, and as someone who now serves as a mentor, and so, you know, is doing it from both angles, both as a mentee and as a mentor, what are some strategies and some suggestions that you have for people to really be able to invest and cultivate the kind of mentorship relationship that they're looking for? Ooh, I would say the biggest strategy is to know yourself and to know that each mentoring relationship is different. And I say that because very early on, my mentor sat me down and said, listen, boo-boo, I'm not your friend, right? And I still call her and I still text her and I'm still, ask me my mentor's name, it's Dr. Cooper. I know Shauna Cooper, but never in my life would I call her Shauna, right? But I just (laughs) told you, I have grad students now who do not call me Aisha. They also do not call me Dr. Metzger. They're calling me mommy in the hallways at school, <laughs> right? But that's because that is the relationship that they needed. I, my mm. grad students now, one has her master's and she would never, I can never see that, right? She calls me Dr. Metzger and I get that. And there might be another one who is older than me because I'm very young, right? And she might look at me and call me Aisha and that's fine too, <laughs> right? So really... What I'll say is that Dr. Cooper did this for me is that she helped define the boundaries and the parameters of our relationship. Now I know because she told me, she's asked me repeatedly, please just call me Shauna. It's not going to happen. She gets it. But now I know I can text her at 1 a.m. if I think something crazy is happening with my grant. Previously, I knew you better send that email and you might get a response within <laughs> business days, right? And that is a matter of navigating your mentoring relationship. And that's how ours has evolved over time. But with my current incoming grad students, I had to sit them down and we had to talk about, okay, what are your needs? What is the style of mentorship that you prefer? And I've had to tell them, these are my needs. And this is the style of mentorship that I prefer. So even though you're calling me mommy, mommy cuts on after 11 a.m. Right. So they have to understand that. Right. And even though you're calling me mommy, mommy still expects this level of productivity and your CV mm-hmm. to look like this. And when we come to these meetings, I'm not leading it. Where is your agenda? Right. So having the same expectations, but really talking to your potential mentors or if you're a mentee. Right. Or if you're a mentor talking to your potential mentees about what their needs are and really outlining those boundaries, outlining those expectations, right? So making sure that you're still to do work and to get training and to work for me, 
<laughs> right? So we had some pushback with that and we've had to define our relationship. But that's, I think, what allows our relationship to grow. I'm going to start saying evolve now. I was pushed back and now I just love it. <laughs> Everything is always evolving. We're all, all evolving and growing. So that's really good advice about really just understanding what you need out of a mentorship relationship, but also like how you typically, not that it's always going to mesh with the other person, but how you typically you know, like to learn, like to be interacted with and set those boundaries and those expectations, being really clear about that. Obviously over time, as y'all get to know each other better, things can relax, you can become more familiar, but establishing that at the outset, those clear expectations is really important and really helpful. And then you said something about making sure that the mentee, I feel like where people sometimes get it wrong is that it actually is the mentee's responsibility to decide what they need and kind of just, you know, figure out what the agenda is, come to meetings prepared. And I think sometimes even myself, I didn't, when I was early on in my program, I didn't really realize that I was supposed to be the one taking the lead. So then I, you know, like wasn't really getting the mentorship that I needed, but I also wasn't doing the work because I just, I didn't know that that's what I was supposed to be doing. So that's really great advice that you shared. Yeah. You know what, if you want me to set an agenda, I'll set it. And it'll be based on everything that I need to succeed right now. Because I have a to-do list, right? And it's based on my grants and my publications and my program of research, right? But if you want me to mentor you through getting through grad school, which I can do, you need to be up on your program requirements. You need to be up on your next milestone. You need to be up on what you need next. Otherwise, I'll run the show. I'll run the ship. But it's going to be based <laughs> on my priorities, right? What are your priorities? And I think that as a mentor, one thing that I found that's been important is making sure that those grad students also see your work as a part of their priority, right? So it's not that you're my worker and that's your only mm -hmm. role and you're going to just check that off the list. No, I want this to be something that you carve a piece out of, that you're able to take ownership over, that you're excited about so that you can move that piece of your work, but that contributes to my work as well forward. But that's about, like you said, outlining responsibilities, outlining needs as well, mm -hmm. because my needs are based on my needs. <laughs> I can help you see what your needs are and I can help you navigate your needs, but certainly I can't be responsible for your needs and my needs and your mm -hmm. undergraduate needs and the undergrad needs and right like I need to bathe and <laughs> It is the clear boundaries for me. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, I want to talk about funding. How was your PhD program funded? How did you navigate finding money, especially as someone who is in a field where, you know, grant writing is pretty crucial to the work that you do? Huh. Ooh, I want to say even before my PhD. So, right, let me talk about my dad again. So I always knew you're going to fund your way through college. You got to get those scholarships. So once I was used to doing that, so in high school, I didn't go to lunch my senior year. I was in the cafeteria every day applying for scholarships. That's just what I did. I ended up with my full ride because I needed that full ride. The same went for grad school. I knew that there would be some sort of stipend, but I also knew that I needed groceries and gas and that I didn't want to live at home. I was going to be in another state, so I needed funding. So before I even got to graduate school, I asked my mentor, okay, what can we apply for? <laughs> I know what I want to be doing. I know what you're currently doing. What can we apply for? I was already applying for funding. So I came in with additional funding to support my research and my trajectory. And while I was there, I was applying the entire time. I was applying for Ford Foundation. I was applying for SREB. I was making sure that I was getting intramural funding as well. And just making sure that my program of research was supported by grant funding 
I certainly didn't start securing that funding. (laughs) (laughs) But you're already in the habit of applying, which is, you know, by the time that you actually like need it, you know, you had already done the work of getting into the process of working on this application. I say I wasn't securing that funding. Um, (laughs) Right. I got the ride to college. I got the additional funding to help support me through my program of research. But the first time I applied for Ford, for example, I was an honorable mention. Even currently, the first time I applied for the loan repayment, oh, the first three times I applied for the loan repayment program, I didn't get it. So even currently, I'm still in the habit of just persisting is what I'll say. So I I do have a history of applying for things Mm -hmm. and applying multiple times when necessary. Awesome. So after you finished your PhD, you did not one, but two postdocs. Why did you decide to do two different postdocs and kind of how were they different from one another? What, what different things did each of them kind of give you for your career? Yeah. So at that stage, I was very intentional. So postdoc for the listeners, I had already gotten my doctorate. I had already done my dissertation. I had already done a clinical internship year. And I was at the stage where I had to figure out, okay, what's my next step? How do I want to fund myself, right? So this is when I was finally going to make what I thought was real money. (laughs) So, right. So we weren't (laughs) poor anymore. So my first postdoc was at the National Crime Victim Center. So when I talked about the work that I do, that's with trauma. So I was doing trauma research. And I was still able to do a little bit of clinical work. So it basically flipped my internship year. Internship year was 80% clinical work, 20% research. My trauma postdoc was 80% research, 20% clinical work, but it was all on interpersonal trauma. And I was starting to do the work on racial trauma and integrating that into treatments. But again, I did see that I needed to return to those kind of community roots. So this was all very clinical that I had been doing. But again, my PhD or my doctorate is in clinical community psychology. So I just looked for additional training in the community piece, and it ended up being post or public health research that was the best fit for me. So I did a public health postdoc at Yale that allowed me to modify treatments on a larger scale to use research to show the evidence base behind the treatments that I was going to modify. So it really just took my clinical work to the next step to being able to apply it to community as well as public health. So nationwide, at least populations one day will be international. Right now, (laughs) the public is within the the U.S. that we're targeting. Thanks for explaining kind of the the differences between the two ones. So it sounds like one was more clinical and one was more research, especially public health research focused. Got it. So you kind of hinted at this earlier, but you decided, I mean, we've talked to a couple of psychologists on the podcast before, and some people kind of talk about pursuing their licensure, and then some people pursue an academic route. You actually did both. You've got your license. You're a licensed therapist. You're also a clinical researcher. You're also a faculty member not only any kind of faculty member, you've won awards for teaching. So you're like a good faculty member. You also do consulting. Okay. You're doing a lot, first of all, but how did you decide how and why did you decide to pursue your licensure as well as pursue an academic career? So that's one question. And then secondly, how do you balance teaching and research with clinical practice and consulting? Okay. Well, balance comes hard. Balance is something that I'm learning now. 
Well, I'll say that I'll put it this way. When I was studying for the professional practice exam that you have to take to get licensed, I got a kidney infection. I was in my first or second year on faculty. I was supervising doctoral students, already supervising, not yet licensed, right? So I had a supervisor as well, but I was studying for it at the time and I was just overworked, spending too much time at my computer and not spending enough time taking care of myself. But now what I'll say is that I balance it by making sure that I'm very protective of my time. I make sure that when I am working, I'm effective, but I make sure that that computer closes at an appropriate time. I make sure that after I've met a deadline, I take a break. I make sure that after I've met several deadlines, I take a vacation, right? So I I make sure that I remember that balance that I need and I make sure that I fight for that balance. How do they all contribute to each other? How do they all happen? (laughs) (laughs) Truly, truly, truly. It's about the impact that I want to have and the work that I want to do. So I know that as a researcher, I can have all of this knowledge in my brain and I can do the work to get it into a peer-reviewed journal. But that means that the only people who are going to read that are my peers. So I clinically on my internship year, noticed that I was having conversation about race that my colleagues weren't having. I noticed that clients were dropping out of treatment and that we were talking about them in consultation teams as if the reason was the responsibility of the client and not the organization, or that the barrier could be overcome by the client changing things and not the clinician. So I pretty early on stepped into a consulting role, even as a team member. I started recording trainings because my mentor told me to record trainings. We were building websites on internship around clinical work and the conversations that I was having and the research that I was doing. I just had mentors that said, look, you need to write this up. You need to record yourself. We're going to put this on the video. You have the evidence base behind it. I didn't want to do it at the time because I don't know what I'm doing, but I did it, right? So a lot of it was just a response to seeing the need across clinical work and then the need across communities, right? So in doing my clinical work and in doing my community-based participatory research, I was talking to clients who said, right, not only do you need to help my therapist talk to me better as a client, But I have friends who aren't even in treatment who need this help as well, Mm -hmm. right? So now that becomes, yeah, (laughs) put on my cake. I'm going to train the clinicians and I'm going to target these community-based kids who aren't even receiving services. And as a researcher and as a clinician, I know, or I can learn, or I can go get the training on how to do that. So really it's just been, I've always had this larger goal of, so I'll say it in two ways treating anti-Black racism, but also eradicating or ending anti-Black racism. But if we want to treat it, right, we can treat it individually. I can treat it with every client that I see, or, and I can treat it by training a whole bunch of other clinicians mm-hmm. right now. So they're treating it that way. And now the youth that I'm working with can empower their friends to use the same strategies. And now you see with the public health messaging campaign and the care package, we're able to give them tools that they can use themselves to heal from 
and also the work that we do. So it's cognitive and it's behavioral. So now if your behaviors are no longer antisocial, your behaviors are no longer those that can get you expelled, suspended, or arrested, or killed, but your behaviors are now ones that are leaving paper trails about racism that you experienced. Your behaviors are now one that peacefully protests. Your behaviors are now one that call district attorneys. Your behaviors are now working towards coping and healing, but also towards dismantling those systems and eradicating the problems that you see. And what we see is that that also impacts society. It's changing society, but it's also changing ourselves, right? So now we're no longer hopeless. We're no longer helpless. We're no longer angry. Now we're empowered. Now we're right more resilient. Now we're more hopeful about our future as well. So depression, anxiety, PTSD, right? Racial trauma, all of these things, all of these outcomes that we're interested in as researchers were able to impact positively. But then as me walking around the community, now I'm dapping up teenagers. Hey, I'm, <laughs> right? like I'm able to do that work in multiple different ways. And I think that that's a really important part because otherwise, me, myself, mm-hmm. I be dead, right? So I still have that kidney infection. I'd be behind my computer, only working, only writing, only publishing, only getting grants. Not only that, but the second time I went back to that community, they'd say, I'm not working with you because last time you came, you did your survey, you did your focus group and you never came back, mm-hmm. right? So it's fun for me to be able to keep showing up with donuts and having pizza parties and doing these focus groups, but it also shows the community that I'm engaged with them and that this is work that's important to me. And then here, do the survey. (laughs) (laughs) That is, it's crazy because I really, when I kind of think about my work, it's like, yeah, you you do the research, but for a long time, it was always important to me to make sure that people knew about the research. But I think you're going a step further in that you're doing the research to kind of help clinicians do their job better. Then you're also treating clients like on a one-on-one basis. And then you're also inspiring community action so that people can continue doing because you can't as a a single person do all the work so here it's like this ripple effect where you're empowering the community to do it on their own so you're really tackling empowering come on yes so you know speaking about that I know your lab is called the empower lab which I'm always impressed by how psychologists can come up with the best acronyms for their labs. Like y'all just really, I feel like there's some school that y'all go to to understand, to like figure out how to come up with these dope names, but the Empower Lab stands for Engaging Minorities in Prevention, Outreach, Wellness, Education, and Research. Love it, Empower. And I know you've talked a little bit about the work that you've done, but do you want to share a little bit more about the work that the Empower Lab produces and some of the kind of research especially some of the community work that you've been doing. Yes. So that's my baby. The Empower Lab was founded in 2017. So most of my postdoctoral research is under the Empower Lab. Certainly everything that I've done as tenure track faculty has been done under the Empower Lab. And you're right. It was a process of really just thinking about, one, what's the overall mission, right? So it's to empower youth, but also to do what, right? So I do know the benefit of research, but I also know the benefit of doing outreach in the community. And I know the benefit of focusing on overall wellness, right? And I know the benefit of education. So it was a process of really thinking about what's important to me, 
and how I can let other people see what we're doing when they hear about us. So yeah, I love whenever someone says anything about empowering communities. I'm like, yes, because that's what it's all about, right? The work cannot just be me doing the work. It's about how can we empower ourselves to do the work? So what is our work? Our work focuses on eradicating and healing from anti-Black racism, and we do it in so many ways. But my program of research, what I'll say the current projects that we have are kind of four main pillars, <laughs> but it does help to keep us structured and it does help us to impact at different levels. So we have kind of basic science work that we do, which is where you see us on college campuses just handing out surveys. And we give surveys on kind of the outcomes that we're interested in. So mental health outcomes like depression and PTSD and anxiety and trauma and racial trauma, but also the risk and protective factors that are important to us and to our community. So risk factors that I talked about being the interpersonal and racial trauma and the protective factor being racial socialization. And just knowing, again, right, racial socialization is a conversation that we're all having as Black families. We have it in many different ways. So the first pillar is to understand the differences that exist in those conversations and in why families are having those conversations and the different types of families that have these conversations, right? So really just understanding the process of talking about race in America. And then we, we do evaluation work. So the second pillar is really looking at what already exists, what's the existing evidence base, what flaws exist, how can we overcome those flaws? And I say evidence base, so that is in treatment. So I evaluate different treatments, so cognitive behavioral therapies, and also different organizations. So organizations that say we're doing great community work, I go in and I do research to say, here's <laughs> actually how you're doing and here's how you can do it better. Mm-hmm. And that really influences the next stage, which is being able to adapt and to change. We call it translational research, but that just means, okay, how do we take what we've learned and apply it to the treatments? So I have a project that was It's actually funded by a bunch of people (laughs) at these different stages. But CIRA, which is out of Yale University, they funded this project through the National Institute of Health that allowed me to actually adapt trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and integrate racial socialization into that. And then subsequent funding has allowed me to provide those trainings and to get the evidence around the benefit of those trainings. So that's really the translational work that I'm doing. And also within the community organizations, again, once we do the evaluations, really translating that into how can we change what you're doing? So how can we change your office hours to now be weekend and evening hours? How can we change your policies to where now you accept Medicaid and you tell your clients about the Medicaid van so that they can receive transportation? How can we get you to offer childcare, right? So applying what we learned in the evaluation stages and in the early stages, right? So what the differences we learned about racial socialization, we're integrating those into the treatments that are cognitive and behavioral. And then the fourth pillar of our work is that emerging work that I talked about. It's the public health work that we're doing. So once we've worked with the communities and we've changed the organizations and the treatment, really targeting those members of our community that are not engaged in treatment, whether that be because they're subclinical in their symptom expression or because they don't have access to, or maybe their stigma or cultural mistrust, right? A whole bunch of other issues that keep us out of treatment. So how do we empower those communities? How do we give them the skills and the tools that they can use themselves 
to overcome these interpersonal and racial stressors. So that work is really exciting to me. That's what you see when you go to my website, right? You do. So I do have research tabs where you can read my articles and look at my research summaries. But also we have a racial trauma guide that gives resources and strategies for talking about race and being a good ally and advocate and overcoming racism. And we have a care package that actually works through strategies for behavioral activation and relaxation and cognitive coping. So how do you how do you restructure your thoughts about racism or your thoughts about your impact on society in order to be more impactful, in order to be more healthy, in order to be more happy and to live a more fulfilling life? And we do that right online. We do that like you're doing with your podcast really just getting the message out to the public through that public health work. So that's a long answer to what we're doing, those four main things. Really just trying to get rid of racism, get her out of here because she's funky and nobody needs her. Nobody, not a single soul. (laughs) I think that was a really clear way of explaining all the different multifaceted things that Empower does, which really seems like is a larger reflection of your research and research and community work and values and how you try and make a difference in all of those areas. I have a really quick question only because someone who I spoke to earlier this week brought this up. So now I'm just curious. It's on my mind from a research point. I hope that this isn't going to take away from the podcast interview, but when you are studying, you know, you've talked about how black families kind of talk about race as this social racialization. That's the, the phrase. Racial, that socialization. racial. Okay. Thank you. Racial socialization. Are we um, are you, pop, really? Okay, the talk, yes. But are you looking at different kinds of Black families? So for example, are you looking at multiracial Black families, looking at immigrant Black families? Are they having the talk differently? Are they having the talk at different... That's also part of your work as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's a part of my work at every stage. So at the first stage, we are definitely collecting that data, right? So we're asking about demographics. Are you first generation? We're asking about the age of the parent. We're asking about the parent's own experiences with racism, because we do know that how you experience racism Mm -hmm. impacts the way you, you parent your kids and protect them against racism. We're asking about immigration status. We're asking about literally anything that you can think of. But what you see is that when you start talking to people, it becomes even more clear, right? So they say different things like, listen, I don't see white people. Racism doesn't impact me. And others will say, right, I bus to a white area. So at home, it doesn't impact me, but at school, I'm navigating them Mm -hmm. in this way. Other people have differences based on their income or based on their own education, right? So going to a PWI versus Mm -hmm. going to HBCU, right? The way that you think about the world is different, but also the experiences that you have are different and the ways that you talk about race is different. So we call it racial socialization, but it's truly just the talk and it's the talk and the walk. So it's the practices, it's like the role playing. It's, you know, your parents tell you, hands it 10 and two if you get pulled over. And then you have a conversation when you watch something on the news, they say, okay, 10 and two didn't work. So here's what else we can do. And in this case, here's how we can protest or respond as a family or as a community. So all of that goes into racial socialization. And certainly, I don't think it pulls away from the conversation at all. I think that that's the important part of the conversation, right? So for us to know, right, I don't even know if you're first generation, right? But as immigrants, as first generation, as someone who came willfully versus as a refugee, right, as Black Americans who say my ancestors were slaves, right? So 
I even have conversations now with my current friends and I'm meeting their parents and they went through segregation in America and my mind is blown, right? So just having those conversations on the clinical level, having them with community-based participatory research, seeing that conversation in a research article, Mm -hmm. right? So saying that, yep, I do quantitative research and I'm going to crunch these numbers, but Here's a paper that was written with community members and that their voices are in this as well. And this is where some of that work starts to come out. And absolutely, it's important. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thanks so much for answering that. So last question, what is one piece of advice that you would leave for current or prospective Black women who are pursuing doctoral studies? What words of wisdom do you have for them? Ooh, I like that. So that's very specific. So you said women of color are Black. I said Black. Black, I love it. So black 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 women women who are about to pursue their doctorate, Mm -hmm. I will say find your people and find people who see you. And that is to say, right, your best friends are going to be your best collaborators. Your biggest support system is going to be one that pours into your soul, that pours into your spirit, that reminds you of the importance of your work when your colleagues are questioning the need for your work and the value of your mere existence in grad school and in future years. Find people who will remind you of that value, but also contribute to that work, right? So don't be behind your computer working on your own, Hmm. right? Know that even if it's your thesis or your dissertation, you can bounce those ideas off of people. You can get people to collaborate. You can grant write jointly. You can certainly publish jointly. Please don't sole author anything in graduate school, right? (laughs) Find your people would be my advice. Great advice. So thank you so much, Dr. Metzger, for your time and sharing on the Cohort Sisters podcast. So many times we got to talk about your journey, got to talk about your work, which is like far reaching in so many different ways and excited to have people have the opportunity to continue get those yard signs. We'll have the info in the show notes as well as to how people can get it. But yes, thank you so much again. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks for your time. Now, I don't know about y'all, but this was an amazing episode. I truly hope that you visit DrAishaMetzger.com to learn more about the Empower Lab, to learn more about all the amazing work that she's doing, that we're doing as a lab. Also, if you are interested and are pursuing a doctorate and you identify as a Black woman, definitely join Cohort Sisters as a network. It is an amazing place and it is an amazing resource to have and to feel supported and to feel seen. Um, I hope you all truly enjoyed this episode. Of course, stay tuned for our next episodes and remember to stay safe, stay healthy, and keep being great. Bye.